Uh, so welcome everyone. Thank you for being here. My name is Michael Fraud. I'm the Assistant Program Director at Drisha, and uh, we're really excited to be welcoming everyone here to the first session of our series, Alter Ego, Ibrahim, uh, Isaac Ibrahim, Abraham and Sarah in the Biblical Narrative with Rabbi David Silber, who's the founder and dean of Drisha. Uh, Rabbi Silber received ordination from Yeshiva University and is a recipient of the Covenant Award uh, for Excellence in Innovative Jewish Education, as well as the author of two books, A Passover Haggadah, Go Forth and Learn, as well as For Such a Time as This, Biblical Reflections in the Book of Esther. He is married to Dr. Devorah Steinmetz. They have eight children and live in New York City. And this class is going to be offering an analysis of the roles that Isaac plays in the Torah, including the Akedah. We'll be working on that over the course of the next five weeks or so, mostly focusing on chapters 20 to 22 in Genesis. Uh, we are going to be focusing on a close reading of the text itself, uh, as well as framing that with some understanding from rabbinic sources. For those of you who have been following us, this also picks up from the end of our classes from earlier in the year on Your Name Shall Be Great, the Abraham narrative, where we focused on the preceding chapters in Genesis over the course of the past few months. So some of the, the themes and ideas may come up once again from that. So uh, we'll be excited to see a little bit of continuity in the narrative in the way that one might expect from, from father to son and, and from narrative to narrative. Uh, but it's also a great opportunity for folks to jump in. So for those of you who are joining us now, uh, welcome. Uh, if, you're, if you're joining a class now for the first time, we are very, very happy to have you here. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to Rabbi Silver to start learning together. Thank you, Michael. Okay, so yes, we will be picking up with chapter 20. Uh, I'm not sure we'll get to Yitzchak uh, today, but I did want to uh, focus to some extent on the character of Yitzchak, especially Yitzchak as seen and his, his significance about his father and also his mother, Avram and Sarah. Let's begin first with chapter 20. So chapter 20 begins by Yisamisham Avraham Arzah Negev, by Yeshev ben Kadesh uven Shur, by Yagar Bigrar. So uh, we're told that Avram traveled from there. The previous chapter is the chapter where uh, story of Sodom, the destruction of Sodom, Avram had interceded on their behalf in chapter 18. Uh, chapter 19, we're told of the destruction of Sodom. Avraham's prayers, though not successful in saving Sodom, were successful apparently in saving his nephew Lot. That's found in the previous chapter, chapter 19, in the 29th Pasuk. It says, Vahi b'shachet Elohim et ar-e-kikar, v'yizkar Elohim et Avraham, v'yishalach et Lot b'tokha hafricha, v'afochet ha-rabim ha-sheyashah b'hein Lot. So Avraham's prayers, we are told in chapter 19 towards the end, were successful to some extent. God remembers Avraham. God sends Lot out from amidst the destruction, even as the cities in which Lot dwelt were uh, destroyed. So this is the previous story. And now we have in chapter 20, Avram travels and he comes, he dwells between Kadesh, Uben Shur, Vayagar Bigrar. 
and he resides in a place called Gerar. We, we discover very soon that Gerar is in the land of the Pushtim, the land of the Philistines. And it's interesting, the uh, two words at the end of the first verse, Vayagar Bikrar. So Vayagar, we know that Avram is a Ger, and Gerar, the word Gerar, which also contains the word Ger, serves to emphasize the idea of being a Ger. Now we remember from the earlier chapters that there was a covenant made between Abraham, God, and Abraham's descendants, and the covenant's about the land, possession of the land. And Abraham had asked the question, through what will I know that I shall possess the land? That is to say, what is the commitment we have to make to the covenant, two-sided commitment? God's response is, know well, Know that your descendants will be strangers, Gerim, and they will be enslaved and they'll be oppressed. So one way to read that verse, to understand the verse is that the first thing God says to Avram is your descendants will be Gerim. And perhaps given the situation of being a Ger, you are prone to all kinds of uh, mistreatment. So that the avdut and the inui, the enslavement and the oppression are a function to some extent of being a ger. So the first ger comes first. Elsewhere in the Torah, it is true that uh, when the Torah has this triad of gerut, avdut and inui, it's not always the case that they're in that order. In fact, they are rarely in that order. they are either in two cases, and we discussed this in the past, in two cases, there are, uh, the ger is mentioned third, mentioned last. Uh, in two cases, the inui is mentioned before the abdut. So the actual order that we have in chapter 15 is clearly a you know, paradigm of what's to come, a foreshadowing of these this triad, but the triad is not in the same order. So over here, but here in Breshit, I would say that you gear is first, and what what can follow from being a stranger is all kinds of mistreatment. So the first verse of chapter 20, Vayogar Bikrar, is the way for the Torah to emphasize that Avram is going to a place where he's truly going to be a gear. He's truly going to be an outsider, a stranger of sorts. And that that condition of being a ger um, is possibly, can lead possibly to mistreatment. Now we know that previously when Avram traveled, um, we're told in chapter 12, right towards the beginning of Avram's career, that there was a famine in the land and Vayered Avram Mitzrayim Lagur Sham. Avram went to Mitzrayim Lagur. He's going to a foreign land. He's going to be a Ger. And we know what happened in that story in chapter 12, that as he comes close to uh, entering into Mitzrayim, he turns to his wife Sarai, Sarai at that point and says, um, Come to realize, I know now how beautiful you are. And you better say you're my sister, lest the Egyptians kill me and take you. And that's 
what happens when they go to Mitzrayim is that they do in fact take Sarai and she is taken for who knows how long by Paro. And presumably that experience of Sarah becomes the blueprint for, becomes recast as Geirut, Abdut, and Inui. So here we have in a sense a repeat performance. He's traveling to some land by Yagar Bigrar, and here the Torah emphasizes he's really a Geir, is by Yagar Bigrar. So the reader perhaps anticipates um, uh, there may be trouble looming ahead. And as we'll see, there will be. And now we have the second verse. Avram said, and here it's El Sarah Ishto. Now the word El typically in biblical Hebrew means two. Avram said to Sarah, his wife. It is true that sometimes in the Bible, El can, can be uh, interpreted or translated as concerning. But it is very striking, and we have it in some places. The first chapter of Shmuel, we have it, for example, where El and Al, the Els there mean Al, concerning. But in the Torah itself, it's rare. I didn't do a study of it, but it's very rare. So what do we make of it? Avram said to Sarah, his wife, she is my sister. What do we make of that construction? Uh, and perhaps what it, the Torah is alluding to is this. In any event, let me just finish the verse. The king of Gerar, again, the word Gerar appears over here significantly in the beginning of the story. He's a Ger. And because he's a Ger, Avimelech sends and takes. There's no sense over here that she has any say in the matter nor does he, but there is a sense that what sets it up, of course, is his saying, achotihi. Now, what do we make of, he said to Sarah, if we translate El Sarat to Sarah, uh, his wife, she's my sister, and perhaps what the Torah is after is the following, that in the first incident, what, what, what the Torah is clearly after, the Torah wants us to read these two stories together. Chapter 12 and chapter 20 must be read together. In each case, he travels to a foreign land. In each case, he says his wife is a sister. In each case, the wife is taken. But in the first instance, when he first goes to Egypt in chapter 12, as you all recall, there when he, he starts traveling to Egypt, he doesn't say anything to Sarah. But afterwards, he, um, before he enters the land, he speaks to Sarah. I have come to know, and the word no means please. And when the Mitzrim see you, they'll say, this is his wife. They'll kill me and take you. Please say you're my sister. And he gives a reason that it go well for me and that I survive. So there's a request to Sarah over there. And the request is, he explains, uh, why he makes the request. And twice we have the little word nah. He's saying, please, he's being polite. True, he started traveling there before the request, but he doesn't enter Mitzrayim until he makes the request. So perhaps over here, maybe one way to understand the verses, and Avram said to Sarah, his wife, and then the Torah, you expect 
what did he say to her? But achotihi is a way of saying that effectively, the Torah skips over all the conversation. He said to Sarah, his wife, and we recall what he said earlier, but the bottom line of it is, and the Torah sort of condenses it into these two words, achotihi, she is my sister, as if he's talking already to somebody else who's asking, achotihi. So the Torah wants us here to read the two stories together. And of course, when you read them together, you have two questions, at least two. One is, given what happened the first time, why would we have a repeat performance in chapter 20? The first time Sarah's taken for who knows how long, God intervened through the medium of plagues, back in chapter 12, and Avram is deported from the land, and he and Sarah leave, uh, leave, leave in safety, but there was a, long, a time, and maybe a long time, where she was held captive in the harem of Pharaoh. Why in the world would you repeat this? That's one question. But the second question is even stronger, because in the interim between chapters 12 and chapter 20, we have chapter 17. And in chapter 17, that's the chapter where God says to Avram, your name is at Avram, your name is Avraham. You're going to be the father of nations. And your wife, Sarai, don't call her Sarai, call her Sarah. And she's going to be also the mother of nations. And she's also going to be the covenantal partner. Because this, this wife, Sarah, as you should call her, is going to have a child, and not just a child. She's going to have a covenantal child. She's going to give birth. And Avram in, falls down and laughs, says to himself, how's that possible? She's 90, I'm 100, we have no children till now. And God says, and Avram says, would that Yishmael live before you? And God's response at the, towards the end of chapter 17, No, in truth, she will have a child. And yes, Yishmael, he'll have a blessing. But the covenant, this covenant that I made with you in chapter 15, will be established through Yitzchak. So Sarah is going to be, is going to give birth, and is going to be the mother of the child who is covenantal. The other child will be blessed, but not covenantal. And the whole Brit of chapter 15 shall be carried through Yitzchak, through Yitzchak, through Sarah's child. Now, given that statement in chapter 17, one can only puzzle over this behavior in chapter 20. And the Torah emphasized, he said to his wife, she's my sister. Why would you do such a thing? Because saying that she's my sister opens the possibility to an unscrupulous person would simply grab his sister, which is, of course, exactly what happens in the second verse. So in beginning our study here of chapter 20, we are very puzzled and I think disturbed by what Avram is doing over here. It strikes us as very strange. The second point to emphasize here is in terms of this Avimelech. Avimelech will figure in two chapters in the Avraham narrative. 
One is our chapter, chapter 20, where he's a main character. He will reappear, we'll see, in another shorter section at the end of chapter 21. It's actually the section that appears immediately before Akedat Yitzchak. There he comes onto the scene again, and there Avram and Avimelech make some kind of treaty. So he's a very important person. But what I wanted to emphasize here is that we're reading the story in light of the earliest story of Sarah being taken, there it's Paro, there it's Mitzrayim. Avimelech is the king of the Pushtim, the Philistines, but the Pushtim, the way the Torah has set it up, when you read of Avimelech over here, one way to think of Avimelech is he's a kind of pharaoh figure. He's not identical to Paro, but he's in that same He's in the same ballpark. He's in the same space as Paro. It's a kind of Paro story. In reading of the Pushtim here and in general, it's important to think about the Pushtim in connection to, uh, to uh, Mitzrayim. It's not Mitzrayim, but it's on the way to Mitzrayim, both geographically on the way to Mitzrayim, but also conceptually on the way to Mitzrayim. So this is, our, this is the beginning of our story. And I would say it's a, it's a troubling story. We don't understand the thinking over here. What is this about? Why would you jeopardize your covenantal partner? She's going to have a child, your child, your covenantal child. This is how chapter 20 begins. Let me take a couple more psukim and then I'll stop and take comments or questions. It says, So God appeared to Avimelech in a dream by, at night. The Torah emphasizes here that he, God appeared to Avimelech in a dream at night, suggesting perhaps that he's not necessarily worthy of God's communication, but God intervenes here for the sake of Sarah, for the sake of Abraham, for their sake, God intervenes. And God's statement to Avimelech is, you're going to die on account of the woman that you took, for in fact, she is a married woman. Now here the important point in thinking about Avimelech, what he does, the important point here is that it's true that he didn't know that she was married. Avram had said, she's my unmarried sister. But from the Torah standpoint, in my opinion, that doesn't justify taking her because he takes her without permission. He simply grabs her. And taking somebody without consent for the Chumash, whatever kings may or may not have done in those times, which to me is irrelevant, but from the Chumash's standpoint, uh, the very taking itself is problematic. So here he's warned. He's told, though, if you, if you keep her, then I'm going to uh, kill you. She is, in fact, a married woman. You have to return her. You did something wrong. And this warning was not given to Paro, for example, in chapter 12. Paro took Sarah, who knows how long. And then God intervenes through the medium of, a, uh, of, a, of, of plagues, foreshadowing the plagues in Mitzrayim, the book of Shemot. So here he's been told by God, return her. And the Torah says, Avimelech had not approached her. 
Avimelech did not approach her. It's important for the Torah to say that, um, for among other reasons, because if Avimelech did approach her, and she shortly thereafter has a child, one would never know who the father of the child is. I mean, one still may not know because we don't know that Avimelech or Karabi Lera. And in fact, the Midrashim say people were claiming that Avimelech is in fact the father of Yitzchak, but the Torah testifies for us that that's not the case. They didn't go nearer, unlike, unlike Paro, by the way, never said that concerning Paro, from which we may infer that Paro did go nearer. So Avimelech didn't go near, by Yomar he said, Adonai Hagoi Gam Tzadik Taro. Lord, would you slay even a righteous people? Tzadik is one who's innocent. Would you kill, would you slay even a righteous Goy? Goy means nation. Would you slay even a righteous nation? What is the meaning of those words, would you slay even a righteous nation? So, Presumably, he alludes to the previous chapter, actually previous chapter and a half. The previous chapter, as I stated earlier, is the story of, of uh, Saddam, the destruction of Saddam. God destroys Saddam. In chapter 18, Avram had prayed for Saddam, if you recall. Avram's prayer about Saddam was, he turned to God and said, what kind of judge are you? The judge of the whole world won't do justice. Maybe there are 50 tzaddikim, 50 innocent people. How could you destroy everybody if you destroy the wicked as well? God says, if there are 50 tzaddikim, I'll spare everybody. And Avram negotiates it down, 50, 45, 40, 30, 20, 10. And the words, key words over there, of course, are mishpat, and the word tzaddik or tzaddikim. So Avram had prayed that God should spare the righteous. Not righteous, perhaps, but at least the innocent. He didn't, that's Avram's prayer. Here, it's interesting, here we have Avimelech's prayer, which is actually about himself. He was just told, I'm going to kill you. There's no mention, by the way, in verse number three, that God had threatened to kill anybody but Avimelech. Verse 3 said, You're going to die. You. You will die for the woman you took. When Avimelech turns to God and argues, as Abraham did for Sodom, he says, Hashem, would you slay even a righteous nation? Who mentioned the nation? But of course, Avimelech, this is interesting about Avimelech, by saying, would you slay a righteous nation? The subtext is, you know, it's not just about me. It's about, the, the, it's about all of us. It's about, and all of us can mean them in addition to me, or all of us can mean we all share some of the guilt. But of course, in this case, why should the others share guilt? Okay, he's their leader, but the primary guilty party is Avimelech. So here we have something interesting about Avimelech. First of all, he calls himself a tzaddik, which most tzaddikim do not do. It's rare that a, rare, happens sometimes, but usually a tzaddik doesn't call himself or herself a tzaddik. And he's questioning God. What kind of God are you? He says, he's questioning God's righteousness, God's fairness. 
It's one thing when Abraham questions the fairness of God in relationship to a third party, but Avimelech questions God's righteousness in connection to himself. He's a tzaddik. He's a tzaddik. It's a nation of tzaddikim. And now he continues, and afterwards I'll take comments or questions, and then he says, okay, as far as you're concerned, God, we got some problems with you. And then he adds, hello, who am I? And he says, furthermore, he said, it's my sister, which he did say. And she, he gamhi, she also said, he's my brother. So listen, the guilty party is not me. The guilty party is he, him, who said she's my sister. He gamhi, and she also. She also said, he's my brother. So I'm innocent, it's their fault. And then he adds, I did this with a, with a blameless heart and clean hands. So therefore, we have two different comments. About himself, he's a tomlev and a kikapayim and a tzaddik, which is very high praise. It's hard to find in the entire Bible. Bible anybody who's given all of those uh, descriptions all in one person, Sadiq, Tom Leib, Mikika, sounds like the most righteous person who ever lived. And on the other hand, he's responsible, she's responsible. And frankly, God, I have to hold you a bit responsible as well. I don't think you, the way you administer justice in the world is actually correct. Would you slave in a righteous, righteous nation? So this is Avimelech. Uh, interesting is that a little word that appears in both of the two psukim that we just read, four and five, the little word is the little word gam. Right? Hagoi gam tzadik tarog in verse number four, would you slay even the righteous? And then he adds, and furthermore, he, she, he said X, and she, he gam yamra achigu. So that the other side is very guilty, and I am the, I'm the, I'm the innocent one. That's Avimelech's complaint to God, questioning God's governance of the, God's fairness, God's governance, etc. Uh, when we have people who question God's fairness and governance, uh, Abraham comes to mind, but of course it's not about himself. In the case of Eov, it is about himself, actually. He frames it in much broader terms, but there, in fact, we're told, at least at the beginning of Eov, that Eov's been tested. Okay. In any event, so now we have God's response. Uh, two more psukim, and I'll stop. It says, Elohim. Now we have God's response to Abimelech. Again, Bachalon. Notice that the Torah emphasizes it's in a dream. God doesn't see, Torah could have said, Elohim. God said to him, no, emphasizing Bachalon, it's in a dream. So it's not that God, it's not necessarily the way God always speaks. Often it says God speaks to X. Whether you believe it's happening in a dream or not, it's a different question. But the Torah didn't emphasize it was a dream. Here it emphasizes it's in a dream. And God says to Avimelech, Gamanochi Yodati. Mr. Mr. Gam, I also know. Gamanochi Yodati. I also know. That you did this. So they translated it with a blameless heart. I, I know you did it with a, I know you didn't know, with a blameless heart. 
ואחסוך גם אנוכי אותך מחתולי. ומאיפה אחסוך? אספר גם אנוכי, again the double gum, I spare you, מחתולי. I don't want you to sin. That's why I'm informing you. Therefore, I don't want you which the translation you have, if that's why I didn't let you touch her. I don't think the issue here is touching. I'll come back to that. I don't think Lingoa means to touch. And then the last verse before I stop at this point, Viata so now. Hoshev Eshata Ish. Return the man's wife. Kinavihu, he's a prophet. He'll pray for you and you will live. And if you don't return her, da kimotamut, know that you will surely die. Ata you and all that are yours. That's God's response. So let's just for a moment think about God's response and then I'll take comments or questions. First of all, there's a mocking in the response of the begam. To the double gums of Avimelech, we have God's two gums in verse number six. But then we have God's larger response. I know what a tzaddik you are. I know that you, I know you did this, I know you didn't know that she was married. Therefore, that's why I'm telling you. I know what a tumblev you are, therefore I'm telling you, I want to prevent you from, 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 from sinning. I'm sure you appreciate that. That's why I'm stopping you. And then God adds in verse number seven, return the man's wife. He's a prophet who'll pray for you. And if you don't do it, I will kill you and all that are yours. Here there are two points of verse seven that are important. They may be obvious, but they're important. First of all, that's not the way God ever talks to any tzaddik. If someone is a tzaddik, God doesn't say, and if you don't do it, I'm going to kill you and everything you possess. That's not the way God speaks to tzaddikim. That's number one. And number two, more to the point, is return the man's wife, for he is a prophet. He will pray for you and you will live, suggests what God is referencing is something along these lines. Abraham prayed for the tzaddikim of Sodom in chapter 18. There were no tzaddikim in Sodom. The whole town was guilty. The town was destroyed. The one person who was saved on account of Abraham, says in chapter 19, was Lot. I don't think we called Lot a tzaddik necessarily, but he had a very good side to him. And he had the other side to him and offers, offers his daughters to the people of Sodom. Such a person is not a Russia. He's not a totally wicked person. He's no saint either. So for that person, Abraham's prayers can in fact uh, work. You are such a person that if Abraham prays for you, being a Navi, and the first time we ever encounter the word Navi in the Bible is one who prays for the other. You are such a tzaddik that if he prays for you, you live. That's the kind of tzaddik you are. Or to put it in different terms, when God says to uh, Avimelech in verse number six, I know that you did this you did this with a, with, a, with a clean heart. Avimelech had said about himself, I did this with a pure heart and clean hands. 
and Rashi in the Medrash make the comment, you may have a pure heart, but you certainly don't have clean hands. So you call yourself a tzaddik, a tom lev and the kikapayim, okay, one out of three maybe. Two out of three is certainly not, but you are the, the following kind of tzaddik. If Abraham the prophet prays for you, you will live. And if you don't do it, mister, I mean, if you don't do it. God says, if you don't do it, means I know in you, you might not want to do it. You might try to finagle out of it in some way. And if you don't do it, I kill you and all that is yours, which is a way of sort of enhancement of the previous verse, because God had said earlier, you will die, right? No mention of anybody else. It's Avimelech who introduces the nation. So God says to him, the nation, you know something? Now that I've warned you, if you don't do it, you put yourself in jeopardy and all that is yours, whatever that means. We don't know, but it's more than just you. So this is how our story begins over here in chapter 20. And uh, I'll stop here for a moment and take comments or questions. Rabbi Silver, really how, I just didn't recall this, that Hashem is speaking to him. I only think of it as Balak being spoken to by God. Very often you don't see it to the non-Jewish. Um, well, you have it here and you have it in, actually very yeah. importantly in another story, which is the story of Laban. Uh, God speaks to Laban. When Laban right. is chasing after Yaakov, God speaks to Laban and says, be careful, be careful not to say anything to Yaakov, nothing good and nothing bad. Mm -hmm. God intervenes in the case of Balk is also true. The Midrashim tie those three characters together, but for our purposes, uh, since we're studying Breshit, the fact that God intervenes here on behalf of, of, of uh, Sarah and Abraham and speaks to Avimelech, and that God intervenes and speaks to Ravan on behalf of Yaakov and his family is very instructive because <laughs> it points to something very important about Avimelech. Let me just say, and I'm, I'm glad you raised that point because it's an opportunity to say now what I was probably would have said later, but I'll say it right now. The character of Avimelech has fooled many people, including in my view, one of the greats, which is the Ramban, who gives Avimelech, in my view, a lot more credit than he deserves. He puts it in terms that he's better than Paro. And I would say that he may be better than Paro in some sense, but he's different than Paro. And in fact, he's more dangerous than Paro. Paro's just a bad guy. Paro's a bad person. Paro doesn't approach you with, with uh, morality. Paro doesn't talk the moral talk. I'm, I'm, I'm so moral and stuff like that. Uh, Avimelech does. Avimelech speaks in moral terms, talks to God. What kind of God are you? This is not right. Are you a just God? Uh, I'm so pure. I'm so innocent. My hands are so clean. I'm a tzaddik. It's going to turn to Avram. What did you do? What kind of behavior is this? This is not acceptable. That's Avimelech. And the character who is an Avimelech character in the book of uh, Breshit, of course, is, is Lavan. Lavan is similar in this respect. Lavan the arch deceiver, but he talks a very wonderful line. Yaakov runs away. Why did you run away? Why did you steal your daughters from me? Why didn't you stay? I would have made a going away party. would have hired a band for you. And then he makes Yaakov swear he won't mistreat his daughters. The man who's mistreated his daughters makes the other guy swear. 
So the connection between Lavan on one hand and Avimelech on the other is very strong. And the truth of the matter is, as we say in the Haggadah, when the Haggadah contrasts Paro with, with, uh, with Lavan, it says Lavan is more dangerous than Paro. Say, okay, Pharaoh decreed against the boys and Lavan would have destroyed everybody. But the deeper point is that actually Lavan's more dangerous because Lavan comes with a so-called moral argument. That's Lavan. He talks morality. And, you know, power doesn't talk morality, really. It's not his thing. Power is about control, power, etc. He's not going to give you a lesson in, in a Musashmus about, about fairness, morality, equity. How could you do this? It's not right. High moral plane. So they're it's a different kind of enemy. The enemy who pretends to be so moral can lecture you about morality. Uh, very dangerous. So that's, that's Avi Melech. So yes, uh, the connection to Lavan is highly instructive. I would put those two in exactly the same pot. They're exactly the same in terms of an approach. God deals with them the same way. God visits each one at night to protect the ones that God cares about. In the first instance, it's Avram and Sarah. In the second instance, it is Yaakov. That's an important distinction between Paro on one end and Avimelech slash Laban uh, on the other. Uh, yes, anybody else for a comment I, in the I, chat or else otherwise? Could, could, could I just say something? Of course. I don't think that you're giving Avimelech enough credit. After all, uh, Abraham put Sarah in this position of being taken after he's told that she's the covenantial mother. And maybe Avimelech lets her go because he realizes that she's pregnant. Well, the Torah says that he didn't go near her, so I don't think she's pregnant. Let me, let me oh. just say one thing to, let me say one thing about this, Atopa, which is my, um, what I'm after here is not to make Avram look good. I think in this chapter, he looks terrible. Actually, and I think this is without question the low point of Avram's career, the absolute low point. And I'll get to that why I say that in a few minutes. So I'm not here to defend Avram. That's not my thinking on any level. It's exactly the opposite, which is that I think in this chapter, I'll just say what I'm getting at, that in this chapter, the presentation of Avram and the presentation of Avimelech are virtually identical. That Avram speaks in Avimelech's language. We'll see, he actually talks the same talk as Avimelech. And this is something that Avram has to, in his, in his life, he has to separate from Avimelech, from the thinking of Avimelech. This will propel us towards the next chapter, and especially chapter 22, the Akedah, where part of what's happening at the Akedah is that Avram is able to separate himself from, uh, from, from Avimelech. So I completely agree with you, but Avram, but I think that the Torah, you know, is presenting Avimelech here and elsewhere as a very uh, questionable person. It's true that when God says, give her back or else God threatens, he restores, he, he restores uh, Sala. That's true. Okay, but that's in, in his dream. Maybe God had him dream in order to protect Sarah. Well, that's possible, but I, I'm not sure that in reading the Bible, we would say that God is having him dream. I think that God is intervening the same way God intervened with Paro. 
Over here, it's different. Over here, it's before he does anything wrong. But the question is how you read this. I know what a tzaddik you are, and therefore I'm, I'm doing this for your own good. I, I know you don't want to sin. You're a good person. You don't want to sin. And by the way, if you don't listen to me, I'm going to kill you and everybody around you. What I'm saying is that's not the way God typically speaks to a righteous person. To a righteous person, God may rebuke a righteous person, but it's never in these terms. And well, we'll see in the continuation of the story. I mean, I'll present what I think is the, a good reading of the chapter. And we'll see how Avimelech fits into the story in, in relationship to Abraham. We have to remember the key person is Abraham here. We're, we're less interested in Avimelech, we're more interested in, in Abraham. But we'll see how the Avimelech character and the Avram character relate in chapter 20. And then we'll see moving forward how the next chapter, and especially the Akega, um, how they relate to this to this chapter as well. Anybody else want to add something? Yeah, to Two, two small points, one, one, one being um, um, God is willing to speak with Avimelech um, even though it's in, a, it's, in a, it's in a low way in a dream because of Tom Levavo, specifically because he has purity of heart, unlike Pharaoh. Pharaoh doesn't get any message. Things just happen. That's true. That's true. So in that sense, he's probably better than Paro. I, I agree with that. But what I'm saying is he may be better. Yes, no, of course. Yes, yes, yes. But he's yes, more yes. dangerous, actually. Yeah, for sure. And the, the, other, the other is in the long arc of the historical books of the Torah, this is already setting up for reading about David as king, thinking of himself as the people. Right. So the David connection, you know, I'm coming out with a book. Uh, on the book of Shmuel. It's going to be in Hebrew. It was sponsored by uh, the previous speaker, Tova Bulo. And uh, <laughs> it's going to be a, uh, it's coming out in about a month in Hebrew. Mazel tov, mazel tov. And uh, yeah, and I'm also working on a set of podcasts, uh, quite long ones, which will be in English and they'll be in, in, in conjunction with the book as well. So it's uh, interesting. One of the, one of the core ideas of the book is exactly what you touched on, David's relationship to the, uh, to, to the Philistines, which is very complicated. And I try to work a lot of it out in the book. You have to remember that King David, uh, he, kills, he kills Goliath, who's a Philistine, but he also takes residence amongst the Philistines. He lives with them at one point to the degree that when they're marching against Israel and against Shaul, the king, he, he marches with them. And he turns back at the end. It's very complex. So the connection of David to the, to the Philistines is very deep, actually, in the book of Shmuel. And it's extraordinarily interesting. So you've hit on something that's, that's very important. David is like the Philistines on one hand, unlike the Philistines. But here we come to an important point about our chapter, about Abraham. The Abraham narrative that we started and now we pick it up with it, you know, chapter 20, the Avram narrative, Abraham has two foils in the, in, the, in the larger narrative. Two foils, two people who are like Avram on one hand, but not like Avram on the other. The second of which is, of course, Abimelech, and we'll get to that. And that was Tova's comment. I'll pick up on the comment because that's very important for, as we continue. But the first foil, obviously, in the Abraham narrative is, of course, Lot, the one who accompanies him, who goes with him in the beginning, then they separate, and all kinds of parallels, Abraham and Sarah in Egypt, Lot in Sodom, etc. 
So there are two different foils. These are two characters who are not Avram. Avram is better than them in many, similar in some ways, but of course much better, Avram is the hero. In the Bible, generally speaking, there are two different books of the Bible, each of which picked up a different foil in terms of using it and in, in, in dealing with their main character. One is the book of Shmuel. One of the main foils in the book of Shmuel are the, are the uh, Philistines, are the Pushtim. Uh, David lives amongst them. David has one of his main officers, Itai Hagiti. The Philistines are throughout the book. On the other hand, David is not the Philistine at the end of the day. That's one book of the Bible. There, Avimelech is the main foil. There's another book of the Bible, a beautiful little book, in which Lot is the foil. Lot and what Lot represents, and that is the book of Ruth. Book of Ruth is about Ruth, who's a Moabite, who comes from Lot. And she's, she's from Lot, but she's the opposite of Lot. Lot is the one who's, when he's told, go back to the land, he says, I can't, lest I die. And Ruth is the one who says to Naomi, when you die, I will die. I'm going with you no matter what. Lot is the Moabite. The Moabites didn't give food and water to Israel when they, on their pass back from Egypt. And Ruth goes to the field and brings back food to, to, to Naomi. So it's interesting how two different books of the Bible, two rather beautiful books of the Bible, Shmuel and Ruth, each is picking up uh, on the Avram narrative. Each of them is focusing in on one of the particular foils of Abraham, even as they're representing their main character as an Abraham figure. David is an Abraham figure in the book of Shmuel. Uh, for one reason is the idea of continuity. The, the book that we're studying is about passing on the covenant from one generation to the next. And kingship is about continuity. Unless you have a successor, you don't have kingship. So that's, David is an Abraham character, but like Abraham, he has a connection to the Pushtim. Is he like, is he like the Pushtim? To what degree does he break from them? And when you get to the book of Ruth, uh, there you have, Ruth is a, also an, a, a total Abraham figure in terms of chesed, in terms of leaving her land and going to the other place. Those are the two main qualities of Abraham. He's the lechucha and the, and the kindness to the stranger, the achnasat orchim and all that. And that's exactly Ruth. So that's one thing the book of Ruth does. At the very same time, it's dis discriminating between Ruth and the other side of her family, which is Moab. She's a Moabite by birth, but she's not a Moabite by, by, by character or by action. And by, by being a non-Lot character, it further intensifies that she is in fact the true spiritual daughter of uh, Avraham Avinu. So that's a very interesting, the way the other texts use the Abraham narrative, which is why I always love to study these Breshit and these books, because these are the foundational books. So that's a very important point about how the Bible works. Is there somebody else who wants to say something before we I continue? I want to ask something. I can't hear, please. Can I ask something, Rabbi Silber? Yeah, go ahead. This is a good story for me to ask you a question which I had on my mind a long time. How, how would you explain the fact that many of the stories has no time indication, but they are very specific about the place, like this one. But I would rather like to know when did it happen, not where. Do you the have only thing I can idea? say is, uh, I presume that part of it is it's a continuation of the previous chapter. It says, yes, it doesn't say how long he was in the previous spot. Um, I have to think more about 
about where the Torah emphasizes. You have, for example, many place times you have achar hadvarim We have three times in Breshit. We're going to get to those both in chapter twenty-one and twenty-two. You have ayhi ba'etahi. You have it twice in, in Breshit. So sometimes it seems that it is emphasizing that of the connection between that this what happens now what happened before, and the place of course is clearly significant given the fact that the blessings about a particular place. I mean, the Torah begins with exile from the place. In terms of, let me just say one of a general comment, which is that uh, Heschel in his writings, some I mean, of which are very beautiful, he has a book about the Sabbath, the Shabbat. And there what he emphasizes is the holiness of a, of a time, which is in fact the, the, the end of the first Torah, chapter of the Torah, it ends with Shabbat. Um, he doesn't emphasize very much in his writings, holiness of space. And uh, I was speaking to somebody about that, someone who's got it, who has done some teaching for Drisha in the past and will do it in the future. I consider him to be the world's expert when it comes to Heschel, that's Dror Bandi. And uh, he said to me that Heschel actually remarked uh, later in life that he regretted not emphasizing holiness of space, because when you look at the Chumash, it's clear that the Chumash does care about holiness of time, but it seems to care a lot more about holiness of space. I mean, it's all about the land. It's about the Mishkan. Now it's space in the sense that Mishkan moves from place to place, but there is a space. So, and the promise of the aspiration to get to the land. So you, you raise a very, a very big question, I think about which of those two is more central my own personal view is that in the Chumash, holiness of space takes precedence of a holiness of time. That's wrong. That would underscore the, the significance of holiness of time as well. Um, okay, let's, anybody else who wants to say a word here and then we'll continue. I wanted to know if anyone addresses why Abraham doesn't pray to Hashem beforehand, ask for advice on what to do, fast first. I mean, there's so many examples of what we do when we go into, when someone goes into a time of potential crisis and you don't see any of that. Uh, well, I'm not sure he sees himself in crisis at this point. Let's start with that. I mean, we read the chapter and we say there's a crisis here in terms of the crisis and, and the, the key point of the chapter, I think, it comes down to the, what is the key, when you have a narrative, it's 13 chapters, 15, whatever the number of chapters, when you have the key, when you're learning anything, especially with those who learn Gemara. When you learn Talmud, one of the, apart from just being able to read it and decode it, but when you read a, a Daf of Gemara, and it goes all over the place, the key to learning Gemara is to figure out what is, in fact, the key issue they're dealing with, because it goes off in 20 directions. What is at the center of the, of the, of the, of the, of the Daf? What's at the center of the Surya? And when it comes to the narratives, like what is this Abraham narrative about? And it strikes me, and I said this when we first started, it's about a blessing, it's about covenantal blessings, it's gotta be passed down. How is it gonna be passed down? Who are the covenantal people involved? And in order to understand that, Avram has to understand how his family works. And clearly, he doesn't seem to fully understand it, because if he fully understood it, after God said, this is your covenantal partner, he wouldn't say, this is my sister. You can love your sister, but she doesn't share your destiny. So obviously, there is a crisis here, and Abram seems to be oblivious to, I mean, it's incredible to us, but that's the way the Torah presents it. In order to get this right, 
he's going to have to come to a deep understanding of how the family works, namely, what is Sarah's role and what is Isaac's role. He will do that at the Akedah. But at this point in time, for whatever reason, he doesn't seem to fully grasp it. So I don't think he sees himself in any kind of crisis. In fact, his word, the first words out of his mouth when God said that Sarah will have a child, would that Yishmael live before you? And to me, the plainest reading is, he's laughing, he's saying, oh, he's gonna have a child, whatever. What about Yishmael? Because that's his son, his, the one he prayed for. He did pray for his son. He was in crisis in chapter 15. What are you gonna give me? He says, I have nobody to see, I have no succession. What, what's a covenant, what's a promise without succession? And God says, you have a, you have a successor. And then Yishmael is born. So he calls him Yishmael, God has heard my, my prayers. He sees Yishmael as the answer to his prayers. When people get in a certain mindset, it's very hard to change our way of thinking. It's incredibly difficult to change the way of thinking, you know? And it takes a long time. Sometimes it takes a generation to get people to think differently about something. So I think that, you know, the prayers, it is always interesting to see where people pray. Here there is no prayer. In fact, the prayer over here is God says, who pray for Abimelech. He's praying. He never prayed for Sarah, by the way. He prayed for himself. He prayed for Abimelech. He prays for Sodom. It's, it's very striking. Maybe we'll come back to this thought. Let's uh, let's continue now a bit. Um, yes. Um, okay. So first of all, when you were you when you uh, emphasized the part about there being the promise that Sarah is the covenantal mother, in between the two incidents, maybe that gave Abraham reason to think that she would be protected when they went down. So he could actually repeat the same lie, but this time she had a different status. On the other hand, it seems to me that when Hashem tells Avimelech to involve Avraham, you know, not just to, look, Hashem could have spared Avimelech without him having to go through Avraham as a, as a mediator or, right. but, but this is a way, first of all, of making Avraham's role as Hashem's representative in the world clear. But on the other hand, it seems to me it's also a rebuke to Avraham to essentially say, you got her into this mess, you're going to have to get her out of it. I think that's a very good point. I, I think I like that very much. I think that's true. I think it's a way to send a message to Avraham, as you said. You're the one who, you know, who got, this, who got her involved in the first place, and it's your responsibility. I think that's a very good point. I think uh, it doesn't contradict what I said before. They're both true. It's both a way of of underscoring to Avimelech who Avimelech, what kind of tzaddik he actually is. You're a tzaddik in Sodom. You're a tzaddik like Loth. You're a tzaddik that if he prays for you, without his prayers, you might not live. Why don't you ask him to pray for you? Um, but I, I like very much what you said about being a message to Avram himself, saying that you're the one who has the responsibility to, 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 to correct the problem that you have created. Uh, I like that. I like that thought very I, much. I have a question. Wait, can I say something about that? I mean, uh, I would say two things. One is, uh, I don't know that he's protect he's saving Sarah. Sarah's going to be kicked out uh, by Avimelech. He's he's only going to be protecting uh, uh, Avimelech. He's not going to be protecting Sarah. The other thing I just wanted to mention is you mentioned something about uh, low nagabah. Uh, I just uh, I wanted yes. to remind. You. Okay, so let me take the second point first. The road, yes, um, the, the the idea of to, to naga, okay, nun gimulayin. So it appears there are, let's say there are three sister stories in Breshit, three sister stories. Two of, this is the second one that we encounter. 
The first is Abraham goes down to Mitzrayim. Pharaoh takes Sarah. The second one is Abraham goes to the land of Gerar, the Philistines. Avimelech takes Sarah. The third is going to be in chapter 26. Yitzchak uh, again goes to the land, is, is in the land of the Philistines. And Avimelech is thinking of taking Rivka, but he sees them together. He realizes that they're not sister and brother, because Yitzchak had said, this is my sister. And he sees them and he summons Yitzchak, why did you, why did you lie to me? Um, all of those three stories, interesting, have the word Nagat. In the first case, we're told that God intervened. That God brought Nigaim on Paro. In the second story over here, uh, we have again the word Let's find that verse. God says to Abimelech. In the third instance, where Rebecca is not taken, chapter 26, in chapter 26, after Abimelech figures out that Rivka is in fact his, his wife, we have chapter 26, verse 11, So in all three, you have Nogea. Clearly, doesn't mean to touch in that case. It means to harm. And in fact, if we think about this idea of taking something you should not take because you have no right to take it. The first time we ever have that kind of a story is of course in the Garden of Eden, the Eitzadah Tovarah, when the snake approaches the Isha and he says, I heard you can't eat any of the fruit of these trees. Oh, no, no, we can have all the fruit. The one, the tree in the middle of the garden, Betochagan, you shouldn't eat it. And I don't think tigul means there means you shouldn't touch it. Sometimes the word lagat in biblical Hebrew does mean to touch, but I don't think it means in that context you shouldn't touch it. That's a, a midrashic understanding. We shouldn't even touch it. That's a kind of a fence around the Torah. And what happens when you don't mind the fence, you get in trouble. But it probably means you shouldn't do some kind of damage to it. Well, tigubal means not to eat it, not to use it, not, not to consume it in some way. Maybe eating, not to use it in some other sense, maybe to cook it, who knows. But I, in all of these cases, in other words, in that story of taking that which is forbidden to you, okay? The parallel to that story is chapter six of B'nai Elohim. They saw, they saw the women and they took whatever they wanted. They were good. So the Chumash is already setting up in chapter six, a parallel between the primal sin of taking the forbidden fruit and taking women without consent, which is the B'nai Elohim. And all three stories, actually, all three stories have the same word, Lagat, and it's a way of the Torah underscoring the fact and what we're talking about over here is not just any old sin. We're talking about what for the Torah is a, the primal sin of taking that which is forbidden. Either it's explicitly forbidden or after we ate of the tree of knowledge and we have knowledge, we should know it's forbidden. So we have the right to simply take whatever we want without consent. So that's my point about Nogea. Nogea, I think in all of the cases, does not, in any of these cases, all three here, 
God didn't touch Pharaoh, right? God brought about nigaim. It means, it means to harm someone in a, in a, in a real way. It means to do damage. And the same thing is true with the woman said to the snake. Now we can't touch it. We can't eat it. We can't, we can't do damage to it. We can't consume it. We can't alter it in some other sense. It doesn't mean to touch. I mean, midrashically, they talk about touching, but that's not what it means over here. But my main point here is to connect the story here to that first, the first sin, which is the primal sin. And that's what's at stake over here. It's something very deeply raw. Okay. Let us, let, when do you have something to say? Yes. Um, Avimelech is not somebody who follows our God. That Abraham follows our God at this point. There is a great deal of ambiguity, certainly in text, as to he's God over other gods, things of this sort. It's not even, even when you get as late as the, uh, the commandments on Sinai. Uh, it's, you shall have no other gods before me. Uh, the, 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 the implication of he's speaking to, God is speaking to Avimelech as not one of his followers, but another God's follower. And so he speaks to him in a sort of very direct, it doesn't depend on a lot of other things. I'm powerful. You do what I say or you will suffer. Because that's what he feels. That's what this man who doesn't accept him as a god, but will, I mean, if he's controlled bolts of lightning around, then he's somebody to be afraid of. Right, but I would say over here that I think the what the Torah emphasizes here, it doesn't mention any other gods in the chapter. I think the point of the Chumash is what we encounter in a few psukim later, and Avimelech asks Avram, why did you do this? What, what did you see, Mora Ita? What did you see that you did such a thing? And Avram's first response, first thing he says is, he said, what I saw, he said, what did I see, Mora Ita? Kiasita Tabarazer. And Avram's answer in verse number 14, 11, verse 11 is, I saw this is a place which has no fear of God. Mm-hmm. Having no fear of God, means here and elsewhere as well, having no fear of God in this context means you, 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 you're a person who sets up your own, uh, your own uh, sense of what is right and what is wrong, what's appropriate or inappropriate. And having fear of God means recognizing there's a higher authority that can determine right from wrong. And you, what you do is not ipso facto right. And it comes up, with, for example, later on in the Chumash, when you talk about kingship. The parasha of the king. Uh, the parasha of the king, the king is warned not to be excessive in many ways. And then at the end of that parasha in Sefer Devarim, he's commanded to write a Sefer Torah and actually to, to carry it around and to read it. No, not just to have a book, but to read it. And the reason given is in order that he learned, we at Hashem, to have fear of God. Because the concern of the Torah is that people in power can begin to believe that they make all the decisions about what is right and what is wrong. So the idea of being Yurei Elohim here, which is a critical term, we'll get to it later in the Akedah, it's critical. I think it's not so much that he has enough other gods, whoever those other gods are, but the point over here is, what you've done is not right. And, and God says, the God of this chapter says, and I make and I, I decide what, what is right and wrong. I mean, you should be able to figure it out by yourself, but in case you can't figure it out by yourself, I'm just letting you know, 
unreal. This is this is inappropriate, and and that's that the Elohim is the, is the message here, and this is something that runs throughout the entire Bible. But especially when it comes to people in power, to kings, he is a king. Let's not forget that. And given the kings that we've read about so far in the Torah, whether it's the first king who was Nimrod, whether it's Pharaoh of chapter twelve whether it's nine of the 10 kings in chapter 14, the five kings of Sodom and Amorah, the four kings of, uh, you know, the uh, four powerful kings, uh, the, the only right, righteous king so far that we've encountered is Melchizedek. And he's a very small minority. He's not a representative. So the Torah is concerned about power and the Torah is concerned about abuses of power. And the Torah presumes that people in power make, make their own laws to solidify their position. And that's the concern, I think, in this chapter. Lazo, you wanted to say something? Yes. Uh, I wanted to uh, say two things, if I may. One is just to underline, you know, the way uh, you interpreted God's talk to Abimelech. It's similar to what the mafia uh, talk, how the mafia talks. You have a nice business here. You're a nice guy. You don't want anything to happen to us. Similar <laughs> approach, uh, uh, rhetoric. So I think it makes sense. Uh, but uh, the question that I have is more a psychological question. Here, Avram and all the Sefer Bracious is an education. It's how to uh, become a, a God-fearing human being. And there are all these Oedipal episodes where Avram, who already is on the way to learning, uh, what the relationship to God looks like, but in the Oedipal sense of protecting your woman, he, they continuously fail. Uh, and how is that lesson brought home? And how, do, uh, how, do, how does the Jewish uh, psyche, which is based on Gemilas Hasodim and the reception of, you know, it's a very femininely uh, organized uh, psyche. How does it learn this very important uh, uh, task of protecting your woman. Right. So I think that the question you raise, of course, in the so far what, we, what we've encountered so far up to this point with Abraham, it's an excellent question. As I said before, he prays for Saddam, he prays for Abimelech, he prays for himself, but he doesn't pray for uh, for for his wife, for Sarah, who suffered in, in Mitzrayim. Uh, I think in order to, my take on at least in the Abraham story, uh, we'll get to it later on. I, I will say that I do believe that there is a, a resolution of this of this issue. I think that just to jump ahead for a moment, I think that when Avram buys the grave for Sarah, not just the grave, because he's offered a grave for nothing, he buys a possession in the land. The first possession, the symbolic possession, the main one in Breshit, is uh, when Avram buys the field of, of Ephron, and that is Sarah's place. So I think that there's an understanding that Avram comes to later that Sarah was a full partner, which is why immediately after the Akedah, he both makes the symbolic possession of the land, her, her, her grave and the field adjacent to it. And then the next thing he does is he sets out to find a replacement for Sarah, understanding that without, uh, without a partner, a covenantal partner, uh, in the case of Yitzchak, he, he will not succeed. So he, he brings in Rivka, who understands how the covenant is to proceed. Now, it's much more co complicated than that. But I would say that if you're looking for a kind of romance in, the, in this book, I don't think you're going to find our conception of romance, because Avram's understanding of Sarah's place, his true understanding of Sarah's place, 
happens after she's dead. In her, in her lifetime, there's no sense that he really, yes, in the Akeda, of course, we'll get to it. There is implicit in understanding that Sarah is correct, that Isaac is the, is the covenantal one. But that's the way, but Sarah's not in the Akeda story. She's remarkably absent. The, the Midrashim and the, the poems try to bring her into it in some sense. And then she dies. And then Avram sets out after her death to, to, to incorporate Sarah in a central way. I would say the parallel to that in the book of Breshit is Yaakov and, uh, and, uh, and uh, Rachel. That Rachel dies on the path on the, and she's buried on the road, not buried in the grave of Avram Yitzhak and Yaakov and, and, and all the others. She's outside. And then Yaakov, the story does not end over there. Yaakov later in Breshit sets out to reincorporate Rachel into the family. He does it in a very, very beautiful way, in a very powerful way, but it happens after she died. So I think that the Torah, if you're looking for, for you know, the lived happily ever after, it doesn't happen in, in neither with Avram and Sarah, and so in that with Yaakov and Rachel, that's for sure. I mean, that's a, it's a tragic yeah, story. So I uh, think that, again, if it's, you know, being kind to people who are marginal, in terms of the Chumash, whether it's the lady or the Ger, or the widow or the orphan or all that, that's, a, that's front and center in the book of Devarim, for example. It's hinted at elsewhere. But for whatever reason, in the cases of, in the case of, each case is different, but Avram and Sarah, I would say that, strikes me that from the very beginning, it's what I said earlier, he sees Sarah as his sister, basically. She may even be his, his sister as possible, not his actual sister. She's probably his niece. And she's probably Lot's, Lot's sister. And when you see somebody a certain way, it is very difficult to reorient yourself to think of them differently. So he cares about his sister. She's a sister, but he's it's not his partner, you know? Now that doesn't necessarily vindicate jeopardizing her in this chapter, in chapter 20. And no matter what I'm gonna say about it, and I don't like to engage in apologetics, that's not my thing. It's a, I'm quite the opposite. It's a very troubling story. And I think it's definitely the low point in Avram's career, the absolute rock bottom. And I think it gets worse actually. As we as we proceed, I, I just wanted to. Got to sometimes rock bottom to get better too. Uh, when you talk about uh, uh, Machpelah uh, acquiring territory, it also means the defense of territory. Uh, and once you have acquired it, you have to uh, display those same uh, uh, virtues as in defending a woman. And uh, perhaps the first time that that happens is in uh, uh, when Lovan is. Uh, forbidden to the entry into uh, Rachel's tent, the tent when- uh, yes, well, he, he actually does enter the tent, but he- But uh, when, when he ejects him and saying, okay, now this is my territory. You right, cannot... he speaks up at that point. That's true, that is, that's correct. Okay, we'll see, we're, we're, you know, we, there's a lot more to say here. Let me, I only have the three or four minutes now. Let me just, let me just get back and wrap up what we have so far. This, 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 these stories are extremely rich. There's so much to say about them. In any event, so God has warned, told Abimelech. Now let's take, pick up the eighth pursuit. They were very frightened. They were people, he, he tells all the people. By the way, why did he have to tell the people altogether? All he had to do was return, return Sarah. But he, 
It's part of saying we're all in this together. It's, not, it's a way to diffuse responsibility that kings often do. It's not about me, it's about us. I'm just one of you, we're all in danger, etc. Or, or he's saying, in fact, look, look, look what Abraham has done to us. It's a way to put more guilt on Abraham. Not just as he endanger me, he endangers you as well. And now we have the next verse. The ninth verse, and I'll just say one thing about this verse, and we'll have to continue next week with this, but it's a wonderful pasuk, actually. It sizes up Abimelech perfectly. He says to Avram, what did you do? What did you do to us? How have I sinned that you have brought upon us a great sin? Three times, acts, acts that should not be done, you have done. You have done to me things that should not be done. We notice in the verse number nine, four different times, the verb to do. In the beginning and repeated. It reminds me of a pasuk that we have in the uh, Megillah, Megillah Esther. And uh, the first chapter of the Megillah is when the Vashti is uh, deposed. She refused to appear at Avinov's party. Uh, so she's uh, deposed. And there's, now we're going to be a search for, you know, Josie's kicked, she's gone. The second chapter begins that afterwards, uh, the king's anger abated. So Charet Vashti Vieta He remembered Vashti. And that's what she had done. And that which had been decreed upon her. And it's very interesting and typical of the Megillah. He remembers, he remembers what Vashti did and that which had been decreed upon her. The Megillah often uses the passive voice. It was decreed upon her. So what did Vashti do? Answer, she did nothing. What she did was not coming to the party. It's what she didn't do actually, is what he really remembers, that she didn't do anything. He says, come to my party so I can show you off to the guys. And she doesn't come. She refuses to come. So then he decrees upon her. The word, the, all kinds of words for decree, da, din, all, all kinds of words. In other words, the king remembers what she had done, which she didn't do anything. The one who did something was Ahasuerus, who, who actually decreed upon her. He remembers what was decreed upon her in the passive. And he had the same thing. Avram, what did you do? What did Avram do? He didn't do anything. He said, this is my sister. The one who does actually is the king. But the way these kings work is they never do anything. They never do anything. It's always someone else's fault or it's someone else who does it. They have people around them who do what they want to do. And this way, they didn't do anything. The decree to kill all the Jews. Ahasuerus signed the decree. It says to Esther, who did it? A wicked person did it, Haman. Really? Without the king, the Haman can do nothing. So the Megillah is replete with the passive verbs. And it's a way for the Torah to give us, a, once again, a, a description of this fellow. It's a fellow who doesn't want to take responsibility for anything. It's, it's all, all about us when he wants to use the us. And then he turns to Avram, what did you do? So it's a way to, once again, 
he's the Tumblade, he's the Tzaddik, he's the Niki Kapayim, he's all that. And then he turns to Avram and says, what did you see? Mora ita. Literally, what did you see? Why did you, once again, Asita? Mora ita ki Asita. The most of rhymes. Mora ita ki Asita. What did you see? And this invites Abram's response. Can you justify yourself? And Abram will justify himself beginning in verse number 11. The problem is sometimes that justification makes it worse. So we'll pick up next week with Abram's justification. And then we'll move through the chapter and we'll see the parallels between Abimelech on one hand and Avram on the other, which is one of the keys of this, of this chapter. And it presents to us a problem about Avraham that he has to overcome. And we'll see in our continued study how he in fact overcomes these, these problems to become what he should be. But chapter 20, of course, is problematic. Otherwise, we will continue next week with chapter 20 and uh, look forward to uh, look forward to uh, continuing to study with you. Thank you so much. Excellent. Thank you so much, okay. Rabbi Silber. And uh, yes, we have a three more, we have three more classes starting this week as part of our series on perspectives on plague. We have one starting this evening, uh, as well as one tomorrow and one on Tuesday. Epidemic Disease in Early Modern Jewish History and Culture with Dr. Joshua Teplitsky is starting tonight. Suffering and Prosperity, a Jewish Philosophical Exploration with Dr. Aaron Siegel is starting tomorrow afternoon. And Death and the Afterlife in the Rabbinic and Kabbalistic Imagination with Rabbi Silber and Dr. Nathaniel Berman is starting up on Tuesday evening. You can get information on all of those classes, as well as the ones that started last week, as well as our participation in the upcoming International Women's Talmud Day on our website at trisha.org classes. So we hope you will check some of those out as well. And we hope to see you back here again next week. Thanks so much, everyone. Thank you. For being